What's up, everyone? I hope you are doing well today. This is Raphael Garcia. We're here. I'm here with, excuse me, Schwan Humes for episode 166 of the MMA Raise podcast. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to us. But before I jump in there, I want to check in with my co-host, Schwan. How are you doing there, sir? Not bad. Another wonderful day and uh, on the uh, surface of the sun, otherwise known as Texas. Yeah, I bet you I'm willing to bet it's crazy hot down here. Yeah, crazy hot and people's tempers starting to flare. I mean, people's tempers flared all over the United States, but, you know, when it gets hot, people's tempers really start flaring, so. Yeah, when it gets hot, people get real, people start getting stupid, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, We have quite a bit to talk about today, but before we do, I wanted to take some time to thank you for everyone who takes some time out of their day to listen to the uh, MMA Raise podcast. You can find our content on multiple channels, but first and foremost, um, you can check us out over at MMARaise.net where you can rate the fights and let us know how excited you are for upcoming fights and what you thought of ones that have just passed using our 10-star system. You can also catch this podcast over at MMA Ratings on um, Instagram and Twitter where we share our content, but we are on YouTube, Spotify, um, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and those are our main platforms. As always, you can catch us on YouTube as well by going up there and searching for an MMA Rings podcast channel where this show is available just about every week, along with our pro wrestling podcast, which comes out later on in the week as well. So, Shwan, let's go ahead and jump into our first topic where we are talking about UFC 250. And we have to start with looking at the main event where Amanda Nunez defended her featherweight title successfully, defeating Felicia Spencer across five rounds. And even though it went to the decision, this was never a close matter in any way, shape, or form. Um, Nunez outclassed her. From basically the first combination, you can see things were going to get bad for Spencer, and they did get bad from her, for her. Uh, she ended up to fight with a nasty hematoma on her head, uh, you know, cuts all over her face. It almost seemed there were opportunities where uh, New Year's could have stopped her, but she just didn't step her foot on the gas. She just kept, you know, peppering her, doing enough to get the win in each round. There's also a little bit of blowback on her corner, on Felicia Spencer's corner for not stopping the fight and uh, keeping their fighter from going out there to take more damage. We're not going to d- jump into that because... I hate to say it, I don't think this one was that egregious from a stoppage standpoint. She was, Felicia Spencer was doing as much as she possibly could out there to attempt to get something off on Nunez. She just wasn't skilled enough to get that done. But we do have to talk about Nunez and where does she stand right now for you, Shawan, when it comes to the pound for pound rankings? Me personally, I have her within my top five, uh, thinking about just the landscape of that group. But where do you have her? Well, I think the, the, the thing that's hard for me with Amanda Nunes is I, I'm a fan. Athletically, I, I think she's probably one of the better athletes, pound for pound, either either uh, gender, male or female. If you go by accomplishments, then it's hard not to keep her in the top five. The main issue I always have with Amanda Nunes is there's people are very – they're very uneven with their compliments, their compliments of her, because the people are going to tell me she's a pound. Even her big, biggest fans 
when other people were getting title shots, they said Ronda was overrated when Ronda came to fight her. When Holly Holm fought her, there have been t- tons of articles about how sloppy a technical fighter, limited a technical fighter Holly Holm is, how she's not that good. Even with Chris Cyborg, a lot of people said she was a bully, beating up on midgets and girls who were undersized and outclassed. And if you're going to make that argument, if you make that argument that Cyborg's overrated, Holmes overrated, Rousey's overrated, then you take away from the argument that Nunes is a pound-for-pound entrant. Because part of being pound-for-pound isn't just having wins. It's not just having titles. Part of being pound-for-pound is the resume of the people you have defeated. That's what separates it. That's why Conor McGregor is going to be considered one of the all-time greats because you look at the list of names that are on his resume that he's beaten. And not just that he beat them, what they did after. He beat Max Holloway. Holloway became no worse than the second best, best featherweight of all time. He beat Aldo. Aldo didn't lose another fight until he fought the guy who, who was the second best featherweight of all time. He fought. He beat Mendez. Mendez won a couple fights. It's like he beat people and they went on to other things. He beat Alvarez and Alvarez later went on to beat Gaethje and went on to win and won. You, you see guys who, and every time they win, that cements them. But a lot of Nunes' fans tend to take apart her opposition. And in taking apart her opposition, they essentially take away any standing she has to be a pound-for-pound person or to get the push that she deserves. Because you're telling me she beat up a bunch of overrated, technically limited frauds. Okay, that's fine. But if, she, if, she, if, the, if that's what she beat, then you can't make her pound for pound. Now, if you want to say that Holly Holm was some kind of expert technician, you want to say Cyborg was one of the greatest women's mixed martial artists of all time, if you want to say that Ronda Rousey is one of the greatest mixed martial artists of all time, then, then you can say that Nunez, you can at least make the statement or have the argument that Nunez is one of the best of all time. She's a pound for pound entrant. But people don't know how to compliment Nunez without totally tearing apart her opposition. Even the UFC does it. And that hurts her cause. Cyborg win is a legit one. Holly Holm was a legit win, but we've seen Holly Holm. She's been up and down her entire career since the Rousey fight. Um, In the Spencer fight, though it shows a high level of class and it shows how good she is, at the same instance, it shows you that Spencer wasn't... It shows you what we already knew. Spencer was not in the caliber of skills or athleticism to even be in a fight with Nunes. She went three rounds and got beat the fuck up by Cyborg, a person that Nunes put away with a round with a clean KO. They're just different calibers of opponent. The only, and when you look at the way she beat a Spencer, Spencer just isn't, Spencer's not even a lead. If Spencer was a male fighter, she wouldn't be top 25 or top 30. So you, you have the number one fighter in the division beating up a number 30 ranked fighter in the division. It's impressive only because Spencer could take the punishment. If Spencer would have went out after the first combo, nobody would think well of this. But since Spencer was able to persevere and keep pushing, it makes it look more impressive because you get to see how tremendously outclassed she was technically and athletically. But this win doesn't help her cause because it's fighting somebody who, if Conor McGregor fought her, Aldo fought her, or if Max Holloway fought the male version of this fighter, we would be bashing them. We'd be like, what the fuck? What is this? What are you? John Jones gets crap for beating middleweights top-ranked middleweights who moved up. Um, he gets crap for beating them. Nunes beat up this girl, and this girl didn't even belong in the same cage, and or she might not belong in the same organization. And, and so, I think this kind of hurts. Um, I think you're a little bit off base there. Um, because saying if she was a male fighter, we would be uh, trouncing this win. I think that's a little, that, I think that's very off base. It's the fact that Nunez, it's a she's fighting the people that are here for her to fight, going up a weight class for her to take that fight. 
is does that make her less of a champion or less of a um, success, in my opinion? No, she's fighting the people that are placed in uh, or around her. I think she could have stopped Felicia Spencer, but she pulled her foot off of the gas a little bit. I still think that she deserves a place on the pound for power rankings right now because of who she's um, defeated. As you said, she's defeated, um, she defeated Cyborg, historic fighter. She defeated Ronda Rousey, historic fighter. Misha Tate, historic fighter. Holly Holm, historic as well. And she's beaten Valentina Shevchenko twice. Um, she's beaten Julia Budd, another champion in another um, organization. She's beaten every single person that has ever been a 135-pound uh, champion. And the only champion I can think of that she hasn't really beaten that people know of would be Marlos Conan. She hasn't fought her. So looking at the longevity of what the run that she's put together and the way that she's changed and developed as a fighter as well is also important because there was a point in time where whenever you're talking about, whenever you were talking about in Amanda Nunez fight, you always had to bring up a question around whether or not she would be able to sustain her um, ability to fight over an extended period of time. She's proven that she can do that in her last few fights where she's taken, I mean, the not this one so much against Spencer, but the fight with um, Jermaine Durand and me, there were some spots where watching that, you're like, man, she looks like she's about to get tired and we can see this fight totally swing the way we did with uh, Kat Zingano, but she's found a way to, to continue to succeed in those moments. That type of development and the track run that she's on right now with the names she's beaten, she definitely deserves to be in the uh, top 10, regardless of gender. No, I, I see that point. Me. I see that point. But my, my whole point is, my whole point is her fans and her people who, who are supporting her, they make her case while they're undercutting it. They'll list those names and then they'll tell me how terrible Holly Holm is. They'll tell, they'll, they'll tell me she beat Cyborg and they think Cyborg is overrated. You're defeating your purpose. When Connor beat Aldo, nobody in the entire history of mixed martial arts ever said Aldo's overrated. Nobody said Max Holloway's overrated. Nobody said nobody said Conor McGregor can't fight. They may say he's over. They 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 still say he's one of the best fighters. It's like I'm I'm saying they hurt their own case by trying to take away from the fighter to make their point. If you if you sell the narrative, which the UFC is trying to sell now that Cyborg was overrated and Cyborg was just a bully, you've essentially neutered your own champion because you said one of her biggest wins was over an overrated fraud. The the building the narrative you want of a pound for pound person's demand you to give the, the opponent a certain amount of respect and a certain amount of credence. Her fans and the organization aren't doing that. So it's, it's taking away from the point you're making. Stipey beats DC. We can't take away anything from DC. We can't take anything away from Steve DC. When DC beats Stipey, we can't take anything from Stipey. But people are actively taking things away from the, her biggest win. And, and the second part I dislike is when people give her all this credit for these wins, but then when they have these losses, they're like, well, that was a long time ago. You got to take the good with the bad. You can't tell me these wins all matter. All these wins you've had from the beginning of your career to end of your career, all these wins matter, but none of the losses mean anything. You've got to shoot that straight. And I think people who are fans of Nunez do her disservice by undercutting her opposition and trying to ignore her losses. That hurts her cause. I think based on the names and based on her athletic dominance and her dominance of the women's division, you can say she's a pound, pound, pound for pound entrance. But if I go by the logic of all her fans in the organization, I can't say she's pound for pound. All you've been telling me is she's beat up a bunch of one-dimensional frauds. 
That's all y'all keep telling me. That's what Amanda Nunes is telling me. Oh, Ronda Rousey beat up a bunch of fraudulent, fake soccer moms. Okay, well, then you beating up Ronda don't mean nothing. Well, Cyborg's a bully, and she never fought anybody her own size. Okay, you knocking out Cyborg means nothing then. You can't have that's all. That's all promotional talk. I mean, even the uh, UFC, they were they were basically denouncing Cyborg as a bum on Saturday's show, but leading up to any other fight she had with the promotion, she was the basically the world's most dangerous woman. So I get that. that, When is the UFC ever? When is the UFC? When is the UFC ever said Jose Aldo's a bum? He got knocked out. Jose Aldo, they haven't done that. They haven't done that to Jose Aldo, but they've done that to they've done that to Demetrius Johnson. They did that to DSP. They've done that to Michael Bisping. They've done that to nearly any other champion at any other point in time. All those guys have... That's why there's a segment of people who have a pushback when you say that that guy was a great fighter. That's why a segment of people push back against that because you can undercut their opposition. You want want to sell the narrative, then you got to sell the narrative completely. I'm not saying she doesn't deserve it. I'm saying her fans and organization undercut, undercut, undercut the stance they're taking. They 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 undercut it. They hurt their own argument. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I, I I see what you're saying. I I can see that, but I don't think that that's an intelligent MMA conversation. Like that's not the types of conversations that intelligent individuals will have around the uh, space. We know in MMA, people are going to be considered greats that still have losses on their record. I mean, there's so like MMA is different from boxing. You're not going to have men and women with 49 and 0 records, 35 and 0 records. That's just not going to happen. People fight the best people and they lose across that um, span. Holly Holm has a lot of losses on, on, on her record, more than a couple. But if you look at who she's lost to, that doesn't denigrate her when that, that, like, that doesn't denigrate her status when someone beats her. I mean, I think she's only been beaten by champions. Am I correct? Misha Tate, um, Jermaine Durandamy, uh, Valentina Shevchenko, and Amanda Nunez, right? Like, that's all that she's been beaten by yeah, so. in the um, UFC. That's like Dan Marino not being considered one of the great quarterbacks when he never won the big one. I mean, yeah, he didn't, but look at what he did in regards to his position. The man's still a great player at that position. I think that's how, that's the better logic to use when we're talking about these fighters and their records because, yeah, everyone's going to have losses. But that doesn't take away what they've done. Demetrius Johnson, he lost to Dominic Cruz. He lost to Henry um, Cejudo. Fine, okay, that knocks him down a couple pegs free, for, no problem. But that doesn't that doesn't lower the value of Cejudo's win over him or 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 um, Cruz's win over him or anyone else that may beat him over over time. He's still one of the pound for pound greats. He's my number two on on my list. GSP is is my number one. And when I talk about Amanda Nunez in today's pound pound for pound record or uh, rankings, I think she, man, I wouldn't put her any lower than four. Um, I, of course, I'd have Jones over her. Um, I hate to say it, but Henry Cejudo would be over her. I mean, who's number three? I would maybe slot her there. Slot her three if you want to put uh, Stephen Miocic at, at, at three. Okay, no problem. Could be if you want to put could be there at. Number three, okay, I understand. You have to Amanda give Nunez a pound for pound injury. Say it again. Uh, I didn't. I didn't know if I could. I didn't hear you, so I didn't know if you were still recording. If you got it, and that's good. I just didn't know where you left off at. 
No, I'm just saying that she's in there, top four or five without a hint, with, without, there shouldn't be any question about that. Yeah, uh, if you're going off accomplishments and names, I, I'm not going to falter for it. I don't have anything against for or against her. You go by the conference, you have to name her the best women's fighter probably of all time. If she's the best women's fighter of all time, then somehow she has to be able to fit somewhere in a, in a pound-for-pound list. Maybe not, maybe probably top five, maybe not top five, but somewhere in a pound-for-pound list, she has to be there because she is the most dominant woman. And if you're the most dominant in a category, that instantly makes you for the overall category that instantly makes you an entrant. You can't be the best running back of all time and not be one of the best players of all time. It doesn't work that way. You can't be one of the best scorers of all time and not be in the NBA hall and be a hall of famer. That's, that's just not how it works. So by that logic, yeah, she is. And she should be given due respect for it. As I said, the organization and her fans, and sometimes Amanda Nunes herself undercut the point she's trying to make in, in, attacking other fighters or making these points against other fighters she's hurting her own cause that that's the only thing i was saying looking from that perspective so that brings us to, that brings us to the next question about um what's next for her a lot of people are having conversations about where she should fit in like what should be her next focus if she should stay at 145 and defend the title against megan anderson if she should go look at going back to 135 irene aldania was one of the names that came up but she's been pitted against Holly Holm next. Even the Valentina Shevchenko fight, I don't think that that should be a... I mean, I get why people are trying to make that fight, but Nunez already has two wins over her, question one of them or not, and Shevchenko still has work to do under her own division as well. So what do you think will be next for Nunez? I honestly... I had a slight bet that I thought she was going to retire on, on Saturday. She has a baby on the way with her wife, um, Nina Ansaroff, or Nina Nunez now. So I thought she was on her way out of the game, at least for a little while. She did say she's going to take some time off, but I'm pretty surprised that she didn't retire. But what do you think is next for her when, when she steps back into the octagon? Well, due to her dominance and the fact that she's so far ahead of all the other people in the division, she, is, she essentially can take some time off. Uh, Adana would have to fight home. That's going to be, what, a couple, a month from now or so? She's got to fight home. That's probably going to be a tough fight. She'll probably need a couple months off. I mean, easily she could get three to three to five months. Another fight, they schedule a fight, take three months from that. She could have six, seven months off easy. And that's only if Adana, if Aldana moves from home straight to Nunez. They might want to have Aldana face Aspen Ladd. Or if you have Holly Holm beat Irina Adana, she can't jump right back into a rematch with Nunez. She's going to have to face one other person. So she's got a minimum of six to nine months time where she can sit back and just wait because there's no clear dominant fighter at Bantamweight. There's really only Megan Anderson at featherweight. And the best thing for her is in both weight divisions, not only is she a better all-round technical fighter, she's also a better and bigger all-round athlete. So there's really no one who's in her, really close enough to her where she really has to worry. I mean, these girls are really far behind her, you know? I mean, they're just so far behind her. She doesn't really have any stress in making another matchup. And most of these girls aren't big names. So anybody she fights is going to make her the same amount of money. So she doesn't have to be in any rush to come back in. She, she really doesn't. What money-making option is there out for her? She doesn't have any really legitimate contenders, people who are really favored to beat her, and she doesn't have any money, money fights out there. So what's her motivation for coming back any quicker than necessary? I mean, the only quote-unquote money fights, and only one of them would be, is a is a boxing match against Clarissa Shields. I don't, and I don't think that she ain't that, doing that would ever happen. I mean, I, I, yeah, she ain't doing that. There's no she point in it. She doesn't work that work. 
I saw something interesting today about a 145-pound fight against um, Kayla Harrison. And in my opinion, A, I don't think Kayla can make 145. Um, that's, a, that's a big cut for her. But I haven't seen enough of Kayla striking to see if she would be able to hang with Nunez in that space. Yes, her judo, as great as Ronda Rousey's judo is, Kayla Harrison's judo was better. So you would wonder if that would be an automatic wash for Nunez if she got her hands on her. But people forget that Nunez is a judo black belt as well. She's a judo black belt and a, a jiu-jitsu black belt too. May not be as, you know, Olympic caliber. It's not, but she's the competitive. But clearly she can she can use it in her skills that she did against uh, Sarah Kaufman. So we, I, I, think it, I think that would be interesting. We've seen Kayla Harrison get frustrated by lesser athletes and lesser fighters where she couldn't finish. The thing is about Kayla Harrison, I'm not even not even the striking is a big concern to me. I don't know what Kayla Harrison does with any real resistance. What happens when she takes someone down and they get back up? What if she takes someone down and they reverse her? What if she tries to get a clinch and the person throws her off of them? It's like we haven't seen her. She, we've seen people survive. We've seen people hang on. We haven't seen anybody push back. What happens when someone pushes back? What happens when somebody makes her work past the pace she's comfortable working at. We have no idea what she does. I don't know that Kayla Harrison, I don't know that if Cyborg moved up to that class, I don't know that Cyborg doesn't beat her. We have a, we have a, a blueprint for how she would beat Cyborg. We know she's athletic. We know she hits hard. We know she's got the judo, but we don't know how she enters against somebody with good footwork. We don't know how she responds to really being hit hard. We don't know how she responds to having to fight at pace. There's just so many questions. And plus their teammates, I, I can't imagine anybody making that fight. It just seems like a bad fight for Kayla Harrison. I mean, if she won, it'd be great for her, but there's a good chance she wouldn't, and there's a good chance she takes a pretty bad beating along the way, and if she gets, she loses, uh, the pro, whatever, PFL, takes a huge hit as far as their, our, their authenticity as a, as a group. So I, I, I can't see that fight being made. There's just too many questions. They're teammates, and I don't think Amanda Nunes thinks it's worth it, to be quite honest. I don't think Amanda Nunes is into it. I think she wants to do her fighting for the UFC. At this point, make some easy money fighting these overmatched girls and and retire the double champion, even though she's champion of a division that really shouldn't exist. One of those divisions shouldn't exist. I, I, I commend her for what she's doing, but this division is so weak, it, it's it's pretty terrible. Yeah, I mean... It's like like that's a a big uh, like that's an understatement. There, they don't even have enough people to put in that division to put um, a complete rankings together. Not even a top the, five. The, the only contender they have is a girl who was tapped out by the girl she beat within an inch of her life in less than two minutes. That's that's only the contender they have in there. She's got two wins, neither one of them impressive. The two losses they were both humiliating, humiliating submission loss. And a humiliating loss getting out-wrestled and out-grappled by Holly Holm. And that's the only other contender she has in the division. I mean, I'm not bashing her. I'm just saying it just doesn't look very good. True, true. Let's uh, talk about all the bantamweight action we saw. And I like that coming out of this fight, there was a lot of question about, we're not even coming out of this out of this event, but coming into it, I really didn't recognize bantamweight as being a really deep division. I just really didn't kind of pay too much attention to it as much as I did maybe welterweight, lightweight, women's straw weight, or something along that or middleweight. I just didn't pay attention to it as much. But looking at this division after Saturday, you have some names here. 
obviously, you know, you don't have a champion right now, but we have Peter Yan and Jose Aldo fighting for the title. We have Aljamain Sterling, um, Sean O'Malley. We have Cody Garbrandt. We have TJ Dillashaw. I mean, Dominic Cruz, if he wants to come back. We have a solid... Still have Faber. Still have Faber, correct. There's a solid group of names there. Even Alex Caceres, he looked decent um, fighting there on Saturday. So you have a batch of guys who are who just looked great. They, I mean, every all of those, everyone who competed on Saturday and won looked really good, really um, impressive. Let's start with Cody Garbrandt first. And you saw him getting the walk-off KO over Hasel Sunsao, smoking him at the end of the second round. What are your thoughts about his performance here? Is this the Cody, is, is this the Cody Garbrandt that we saw defeat Dominic Cruz in 2016? Or is this something different? That we that we're just now experiencing. Um, I think that um, the Cody Garbrandt. I don't know that we have the old Cody Garbrandt back yet. Um, I saw him fighting, and the main thing I saw that I liked about Cody was he seemed more poised. He seemed he seemed a little bit more efficient. He seemed more measured. He wasn't chasing strikes. He wasn't forcing exchanges. He was using a full array of strikes. He was being strategic and he was being patient in what he did in uh, what he did in the fight. The biggest improvement I saw of Cody, that's why I can't say it was old Cody because the old Cody was, uh, was still very wild, still very aggressive. This guy was a little bit more measured. This guy was a little bit more mature in how he was approaching the fight. So from, in, in regard to the speed and the explosiveness, that seemed closer to the Cody of old. I, I haven't seen him look quite as fast in his last two fights. So he looked a little bit more physically refreshed. He looked faster, he looked dynamic. But the biggest improvement he had was the mentality and the way he approached the fight, the way he approached the exchanges, the way he approached his opponent, being very strategical, being very aggressive, but controlled aggression, and waiting for certain spots to really explode and take advantage of the fact that he has such a huge physical advantage over in Sunsau. I, li- I like the maturity. I like the patience. And then after the fight, when they were talking about the post-fight, I've never heard Cody talk about making reads, noticing patterns, trying to be sharp defensively and look for his spots. I've never heard him talk like that in his earlier stages or in any of his fights with Team Alpha Male. Not saying they're a bad team. I just never heard him say such things. When he was fighting for Mark Henry, it seems like he's paying a lot more attention to the finer details. And if he pays attention to the finer details, the more technical and strategic aspects, then even if he doesn't really make huge steps forward technically... He's still going to be a handful. He's going to be a handful for anybody to beat because he's so far ahead of them physically, and now he's fighting with intelligence and, and self-control. So when we saw him land that big shot on Saturday, that was his first win. Um, he lost three in a row. He lost three in a row heading in, in into this year. He was unranked. What do you think is next for him? Should he be someone who faces another top contender, let's say Sean O'Malley? I personally don't agree with that. I think he should fight someone that is coming off of a win or someone in that division that is like right, you know, friends top five. I'm pulling up the rankings right now and looking at the bets and weight division. I could see him facing someone like, well, he just lost to Pedro Munoz. Uh, did he lose to Jimmy Rivera? I don't think he... he I don't think he fought him. He, he lost to TJ 
He lost to Tita Dillashaw. He lost to Pedro Munoz and Cody. No, he lost a no. So he lost to Tita Dillashaw twice and yes, Pedro, uh, Pedro Munoz. So maybe he takes a fight against um, Corey Sanhagen. Maybe he takes that fight next. Maybe a, a fight against a Jimmy Rivera would be good as well. But something that's like right outside of the top ten. Well, that is that is within the, the, the top ten. But something that keeps him active. But I don't think he should be in that title picture. I don't think he should be the number one contender. People are going to be excited about him. And I get it. He had a big, nasty knockout. But the number one contender, in my opinion, is none of the Al- Aljamain Sterling. And he did what he needed to do on Saturday to kind of prove that point. Submitting Corey Sanhagen in less than three minutes. I believe less than two minutes. What are your thoughts about what you saw from Sterling on Saturday? Is he your number one contender? Before I jump into that, the one reason people are saying Cody should get moved right up is because Asensio, out of of all the Bantamweights who fought, Asensio was the guy who's the most proven outside of Cody having an actual title title ring because, I mean, Asensio has fought a who's who over a 10-year period of time. He's fought the best of the best. He's the guy who's routinely beaten top five, top 10, top 15 guys over and over throughout the history of his career. He he, He split two fights with Marais. So Cody knocking him out it doesn't over, it overshadow Sterling so much, but it overshadows pretty much anybody else because he was the most durable, pretty much the best all-round skill guy and the most accomplished guy. He, he's faced the best, and he's won against them. He's lost some, he's won some. Stan Hagen has been pretty unproven against the top guys. Peter Yan hasn't fought a top 10 guy yet. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Sean O'Malley hasn't fought a top guy. So if you go by who they fought and what that person's accomplished, then yeah, Cody's win should impact him moving up in the rankings. I personally think he should take like a rematch with Don, Dominic Cruz, they could still sell that fight. I think he needs rounds because you can't you can't switch all the stuff and make all the improvements in one camp. It takes you a camp or two, so he needs another fight or two to really interact all the things that Mark Henry is teaching him, so that he can be the best version of himself. And I, I don't think they should rush him into any really dangerous fights or high profile fights. Any fight with him is a high profile fight, but they don't need to push him in any one direction. I think he needs to take his time stick to his craft and make slow moves and stop trying to jump the line. Take it step by step. Another fight at least, at least one, maybe two, and then he gets a title shot. I would like to see at least one other fight with like a Dominic Cruz type, I guess maybe Corey Sanhagen, but, but somebody I mean, along those lines. Someone else that's a good uh, recommendation too is um, Cody Stamen, who, who is another bantamweight yep. who will there be you really go. good on, Cody, on, on Saturday. I would, I would take that too. Just, just a fight that keeps him busy, gives him rounds, gives him space to grow and develop and, and really... And install all the improvements he's having. You can't make all those changes overnight. And if you throw him in with an elite guy who, who's comfortable to him athletically, we might see something similar. And he's at the point now he can't afford another one or two losses. He needs to put some wins together. And, and I think the best thing for him to have the wins together and get some rounds against tough, capable opposition. Um, as far as Sterling, Sterling impressed me. I really thought he didn't have the physicality. And I didn't know that he'd be capable of pressuring Sanhagen. I thought Sanhagen would pressure him make him shoot reactive takedowns where he could use his footwork to get away from. And even if he was able to create scrambles, Stan Hagen's a pretty good grappler. So I thought maybe he could defend the takedowns, create his own scrambles, and put Sterling on the offensive. Sterling came out, cut the cage off, put pressure on him, got him up against the cage, got him down, landed some strikes, got him down, and choked him out. His corner, did a, his, corner his camp did a great job of switching the, switching the script. Usually... He likes to stay outside and peck away with long-range weapons. This time, he sat down on the shot, and he walked Sanhagen down. And Sanhagen was not prepared for it at all. Sanhagen had no answer because he, he did not see that coming, and I didn't see it coming either. Sanhagen caught totally off guard. 
and he got finished before he could make an adjustment. That was the best showing I've seen from Aljamie Al- Sterling. And if he can show that kind of diversity on a routine basis, then it's going to be a trouble. It's, anybody's going to be in trouble against them because now you know he can fight at distance. He can fight walking you down. He can fight off the back foot. He can walk pressuring you. That's a tough guy if he can do that, if he can pull those tricks on a regular basis. That's a hard guy to beat. So how realistic is it for us to think of Aljamain Sterling as potentially winning that bantamweight title if he was to face either Aldo or um, Jan? My main question with Sterling, he is that he to me he's still not a really physical fighter. Like technically they compared him to John Jones. Technically he's better than John Jones, but he hasn't shown the durability or the physicality of John Jones. John Jones has muscled and bullied and taken down and beaten up some of the strongest, most physical, most grinding, punishing fighters at the light heavyweight division. He's just run them through. Shogun's a punishing fighter. Dominate him. Daniel Cormier is a, a cardio free punishing fighter. Roughed him up, beat him up. He, he's, he's done this routinely. He's beaten those kind of guys. Sterling, to me, has been physically manhandled and bullied a little bit against guys. Minos had moments. Stamen had moments. And against someone like Peter Yan, who I feel is physical, throws a lot of volume, and is very strong, I feel that if Sterling can't get him on the back foot, that Yan can get him against the cage, can get takedowns, can control him, or just shuck him off when he tries takedowns and just beat him up. Now, if it gets to the ground... Or Sterling can pressure Jan, now we have a whole nother fight. But my concerns from Sterling are always how much heat can he take and how does he handle it when he puts his hands on somebody and that person can move him instead of him being able to move that guy. When he's had guys who can move him, he's had trouble. But luckily, for the most part, the guys he's faced have been lesser athletes and lesser conditioned. So he's been able to turn those fights or wear those guys down. So far, it doesn't seem like Jan has any cardio issues. It doesn't seem like Jan's afraid to exchange. It doesn't seem like Jan's afraid to put pressure on somebody. So if he can't dominate those grappling exchanges or he can't physically dominate Jan, I don't know how he beats him. In the case of Aldo, Aldo's cardio isn't there. His resistance isn't there as much because he's older, but he's still got great takedown defense. He's still a good defensive fighter. He's still got the jab. He's still got his counter punching. And he's still got his footwork. Once again, I can see Aljamain getting him down and strangling him eventually or just out-hustling him, wearing him down, and then finishing him. But the fact of the matter is he's still going to be hard to take down. He's still going to be hard to corner. And if you corner him, he knows how to take angles and take pivots on his way out and can punish you for any entry, any takedown attempt, or any attempt at clinching. So technically, on paper, he poses a lot of problems for Aljamain Sterling. So both of those guys have legit ways, I feel, to beat him. It's just a matter of what Sterling are we going to see, and can Sterling consistently show this diversity in his skill set and diversity in his approach. If we get the usual Sterling we get, He's going to have a tough fight with Aldo. I don't think he beats Jan. If we get this new Sterling, well, now we've got a different kind of fight altogether. But my biggest question still stands. How durable he is under pressure when he's getting hit and he can't get away from it, and how physical can he be when he faces a guy who's not going to be bullied or not going to be intimidated? And when we're talking about someone being bullied, let's talk about Sean O'Malley because he bullied the shit out of Eddie Wineland. Smoking him. With the, I love the feint on the uppercut that he used to get um, Wildland's hands to drop just enough for that overhand right to come finish him off. What did you think about o- o- O'Malley here? How much did that time off help him? And do you see him as a true threat to the title? Because looking at the, again, looking at the top 15, he's not ranked right now. So he's someone else who could face a Cody Stamen and that be a, uh, big fight for him, but what did you think about 
Sean O'Malley's growth and what should they do next with him? The problem I this is the problem I have with O'Malley. Um, um, I think the time off helped him, helped him kind of layer his strike a little bit. I think maybe maybe he's starting to develop more of an all-round technical approach and not leaning so much on his attributes, his his length, his athleticism, his uh, his explosiveness. But even in that fight against Wyland, he showed some tricks to get land that uppercut, creating the openings and punishing Wyland for his pressure. But Wyland was pretty much a showcase fight. Wyland is long, but the biggest thing Wyland has is he's long, he's got reach, he's got good timing, he's a hard hitter, he's pretty athletic. Wyland has lost a step. And when you're a guy who fights with his hands low and you're not as quick as you used to be and you're not, your timing isn't as good as it used to be, you get hit a lot more than you used to, you used to get hit. And Wyland, now that he's getting hit the way he's getting hit, his, you're seeing that his shin has declined a little bit as well. And in this fight, Wyland pressured O'Malley. It's hard to pressure somebody when your hands are low or at your side and you're trying to walk someone down. Your timing has to be perfect. Your positioning has to be perfect. Your defensive maneuvers have to be perfect for you not to get chipped up or KO'd on the way in. Wineland has never been a picture-perfect execution-type execution technical fighter. He's all more of a rhythm, spacing, and athleticism fighter. And O'Malley took advantage of that. But even in O'Malley taking advantage of that, Wineland landed a counter right hand. Wineland was able to pressure him and back him up to the fence. That's not a good sign because Wyland's not a pressure fighter. He wasn't throwing volume. He wasn't throwing a bunch of different strikes. He wasn't, he wasn't really applying a lot of pressure, but he was still able to get O'Malley to back up and to counter O'Malley early. If a faded Wyland can get to him in spots, I don't know what a Cody Garbrandt does to him. I don't know what a Marlon Moraes does to him. I don't know what a Peter Yan does to him. Hell, even a Uriah Faber might cause Sean O'Malley some problems. The fight showed me a couple tricks, showed me a little bit more maturity, but the fact of the matter is I didn't get to see much from him because he was fighting a favorable matchup against a guy who can't take abuse anymore. So what did you expect to happen? You have a, a worn guy with shaky defense, not really precise or sharp offense, who depends on his length and his athleticism. And he's declined in his athleticism. Facing a guy who's a better athlete, who at this point is stronger, at this point more durable, at this point hits harder. What did we really expect to happen? Ellie Wyland isn't a high IQ fighter who shows a wide array of skills. He kind of does what he does regardless of who he's fighting. It either works or it doesn't. In this case, it didn't work. He's not a good enough athlete anymore. He's not durable enough anymore. And that got exposed. It was an impressive win just because he finished it. He did what he's supposed to do. He got Wyland the hell out of there. But Wyland isn't a top 15 ranked guy. He's not really a top. I don't care what he's ranked. He's not a top 15 ranked guy. He's not a top 20 ranked guy. He used to be. His name might be. But he's no longer that kind of guy. So beating up a guy who really shouldn't be in the top 15 isn't as impressive, nearly as impressive as what Sterling did or what Cody did. Coming off of three losses, you knock out a guy who's ranked in the top 10, who hasn't been stopped in like three or four years. And then you have O'Malley, who knocked out a guy who shouldn't be ranked in the top 20, whose best years were like three years ago before he retired. Oh, shout out to Trashy Cole fan who, uh, who DM'd me. And we had a long discussion about how the vulnerabilities that, that O'Malley showed early in this fight. Shout out to him for, for having that conversation. What I do like about um, O'Malley is something that he said in the interviews that came after the fight where he basically made it clear that, hey, I'm fighting out my contract. You know, he wants a, a new deal. He thinks he's, that he's worth more money. And I think he's capitalizing right at the perfect time. Because he got a huge that I mean, a huge knockout 
he looks fantastic in, in, in doing it, and he's capitalizing and getting more money potentially out of the UFC at the right time. And I think that looking at the division, he could be easily slotted in there to face, face someone in this top 15 from, from 15 to 10, and it'd be a valuable fight for him. I don't, again, I don't think he should be vaulted into that top five group. But looking at his record, I mean, he could fight a Marlon Vera who's sitting at number 15 right now. He could fight a John Dotson who's sitting at 13, Song Yadong who's at 14, or, or even a Rob Font who's sitting at 10. You know, there's names there that he could be placed against that would be valuable wins for him and also the guy um, that he will be facing. Yeah, well, the main thing I, I remember him saying is he's not fighting tougher opponents until he starts getting paid more. And um, in that regard, a lot of these guys in the division have fought each other. They fought hard-level competition. O'Malley's getting all his burn and all his rankings based off of his potential, based off his talent, based off of his fan base. He hasn't getting any of this attention based off of what he's actually done. Beating Terrian Ware. Terrian Ware's a good, seasoned, smart, high IQ, tough fighter. He's not a top-ranked fighter. Beating, I think, who fought Quiones? Quiones, when he came back, that guy's not a top-ranked fighter either. Beating Wineland, Wineland's a top-ranked name. Wineland is not a top-ranked fighter. He hasn't really beaten any established, dominant, or or consistent fighters in the UFC. He's beaten a bunch of pretty good, fairly inexperienced, win-some-lose-some type fighters in his run. The only thing that's made his run impressive is people see the potential in his athleticism. They see the excitement. They see the, 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 the fans he brings, and they see the style and the, the kind of charisma he brings. Based on actual accomplishments, his, uh, his time of Bantamweight hasn't been anything to write at home about. We still don't know much about him. We don't know how he faces against a guy who's comfortable as an athlete. We don't know how he faces against a high-level striker. We don't know how he faces against a high-level grappler or wrestler. We, we really have a lot more questions about O'Malley than we actually have answers. But when you're a guy who has the machine behind you, and a guy who is able to strike a nerve with fans, you're going to get put into talks, you're going to get put into rankings, and you're going to get opportunities that guys who may be more, who are more proven are not going to get. I mean, he hasn't even fought a Jimmy Rivera type yet. I, I'd, I'd be happy if O'Malley fought a Dominic Cruz or your favor, somebody, somebody who's a, a Brian Stamen, somebody who's accomplished something, or the guy, he, the guy Stamen B, Keller, Brian Kellner. If you fought somebody who's accomplished something, somebody who's who's shown they can at least compete with the upper echelon in the UFC. He hasn't done that yet. And until he does, I have to reserve my judgment on it. All I can judge is based off the potential he's shown. I can't, I can't put too much weight on anything he's done because he hasn't beaten anybody to demand I, I give him attention or give him props for it. He's done it. He's won in a way that he's won in a manner that gets him props, but he hasn't beaten anybody that should get him props. If you understand what I'm saying. Very true. Very true there, sir. Uh, let's move on and talk about some of the new fights that were announced this week. And we got four. I think we actually got five, but these these are the big four fights that were announced. So the all of these fights are going on on quote-unquote, well, no, the, the July fights are going on on Fight Island, which is actually just a place that UFC has been to in Abu Dhabi. So there's that whole thing to unpack, but I'm not even going to jump into that. In, on July 11th, we're going to get three title fights where we're getting Volkanovski defending his title against Max Holloway for the second time. Or excuse me, for like the rematch. Peter That's Jan a pointless fight. We're going to touch on that. Peter Jan fighting um, 
Jose Aldo for the bantamweight title, and Kamaru Usman versus Gilbert Burns for the welterweight title. So let's start with Volkanovski and Holloway. Now, your first reaction was to say that this is a um, pointless fight. Why is that? Well, I, I'm not anything against. I, it's not anything I have against rematches, but it wasn't a particularly close fight. It wasn't a particularly good fight. I mean, it was high level. There was high level stuff from both guys. There were there was a lot of heart. There was a lot of a high pace, a lot of contact, some excitement. But it wasn't really back and forth, and it really wasn't any question. Volkanovski essentially has had Max Holloway figured out. And he essentially took him apart. Now, Max Holloway throwing as much volume as he does and being as good as he is and being as tough as he is, he's going to get his licks in too. But at no point did I feel that Max Holloway took over the fight or was in a position to take over the fight or finish the fight. This was, it, was kind of, it was kind of like a 145 version of the fight between him and Poirier where, where Holloway would have moments and Holloway was able to stay in the fight. But at no point did you feel he was really going to take over. Every time he's about to really get the momentum going, Poirier which is shut him back down with power and physicality. In this case, Volkanovski shut him back down with physicality and technique. And it just, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that Max Holloway can make the necessary technical changes that he needs to make this fast. You know, get going against the same guy. At this point in the game, it's very hard to switch streams for an extended period of time. If he can get a quick finish, yeah, if he can catch him off guard. But otherwise, at some point, you start reverting back to what you always do. And what he always does isn't good enough to be Volkanovski. He'd have to do something totally different. And we haven't seen something different from Max Holloway in probably a good three to four years. He's essentially won and lost his fights on the same thing. Highly technical, high volume, high contact style that depends on him being able to outwork people, outpace people, and then separate himself with technical ability. He can't outwork Volkanovski. He can't outpace him. And technically, Volkanovski seems to be a step, a step and a half ahead of him. Now, if he comes back and wins it, I look like an idiot. But looking at the fight on paper, looking at it after watching the film, it's hard to imagine he can make that kind of turnaround. It's just really hard. I don't see how he does it. And he's not a knockout puncher either. So it's not like he's just going to snatch a submission or knock him out with one shot. He's not that kind of guy. So he's going to have to grind it out. And I don't think that he can make the necessary changes to win a grinded out tight fight against this kind of fighter. So Holloway Volkanovski here. I look at this featherweight title fight, and is this more of a situation where we're booking just for the sake of booking because there isn't anyone else, according to the UFC standard idea of no, there not being anyone else? But is this booking for the sake of booking because they don't want to slot Volkanovski against someone who may be quote unquote lesser known? I mean, they have Zavit Michael. Zabit Magomed-Sharapov, Chan Sun Jung, even Yair Rodriguez sitting at number five. Max Holloway just fought for the title and Brian Ortega just lost fighting um, as well. So why do you think this is the fight that, that they went back to? Is it just because they didn't have anything else to offer? It seems like it. It seems like they're trying to fulfill contracts or they're just trying to... They're just trying, I mean, Max Holloway, Max Holloway isn't like a superstar, but he has a certain fan base because of his style and kind of who he is and how he comes across so maybe they're just trying to take advantage of that by having him another fight I mean he's a name he's got a fan base there's going to be some kind of excitement and not everybody's an analyst not everybody's a hardcore fan of mixed martial arts so maybe you can sell the 
fight that you can, when they see the fight, they see it as being very close. And if Holloway just comes out harder or throws more, it's just that simple and he can win the fight, even though it's really not that simple. So maybe they're just trying to get the biggest bang for their buck while they don't have any competition from the other sport. They're trying to make as big an impression and get as many views and as many eyes and as many sponsors as they can by putting out a card with a lot, with, with a lot of high-profile bouts on it. That's the only reason I can see to make the fight. I, I don't understand any other reason to make it. True. I get that. Let's talk about this Peter Jan and Jose Aldo fight. Now, out of the two fights, or excuse me, out of the first fight, you said that, that fight is pointless. This one's definitely pointless, in, in my opinion. This is a fight that should not be happening. Uh, Aldo coming off of a loss. You know, he hasn't been the Aldo of old. And you have a division that has at least six guys who could have been slotted into this position and being, being seen as a bigger contender than Peter Jan. But this fight has been made anyway. What are your thoughts about this bout here? And are we wrong to assume that this is a crowning session for Peter Jan? Well, um, Jan hasn't beaten any elite guys. As tough as Jan is and everything he's shown, my concerns for him are the fact he hasn't faced anybody of comparable talent or comparable skill. He's been beating up on second and third tier fighters, and he's looked good doing it, but that's not enough to really be considered elite. This is kind of like, I don't know why they're making him take this fight. I'm guessing they want to see the belt on him, or maybe they feel that he's the future. Either way, he's got a, he's got a weaker resume than Aljamain Sterling, so you would think Sterling would get this fight, but for some reason they put Jan in it. Probably because of fighting styles. Um, personally, I think this could still be a tough match because when Jan fought Uri Faber, Faber gave him some trouble because Faber's a low, he's a pot shot type guy. He throws low volume. There's like one or two, three or four shots at a time. Not at a time, but throughout a round. So it's hard to track him. It's hard to counter him. It's hard to find a rhythm because he's not giving you a lot to work off of. Jose Aldo isn't a pot shot type guy, but he is a low volume type guy. He doesn't give you a lot to work off either because if you get too aggressive, he punishes you with counters. And if you try to get entries the time for clinches or takedowns, he pivots, he dances array, he, 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 he steps off angles, and he punishes you. Even though he's not the whole that he used to, he's still a great defensive fighter, he's still got great footwork, he's still got good timing, and he's still got the jab, and he's still got the counters. Even Marlon Marais had, had trouble with him. And Marais is a more explosive fighter, not a more technical fighter, but a more explosive fighter, and a more dynamic fighter athletically. So there's going to be spots where Jan is going to have trouble with Jose Aldo because Jose Aldo's got the defensive skills, the counter skills, and he's got the experience and seasoning of being in a tough fight. I can't imagine Peter Jan putting any more volume out than Max Holloway, and I can't imagine Jan being any better at wrestling than Chad Mendez, and I really can't imagine him being any more dynamic than Marias or Chad Mendez. So there's nothing he's going to show Aldo that Aldo hasn't seen. If Aldo has anything left, Aldo's going to give him trouble. I, I don't think Jan's great defensively especially with all the volume and pressure he has. And I haven't seen what happens to him when he's forced to fight over the full extent of a fight. He's usually been able to have his way more or less and have the ace in his hole that he's the fresher fighter, the more physically dominating fighter. And he'll still have that ace in his hole, but this time he'll be facing the guy who he's going to have to work to land strikes. He's going to have to work to get into the positions he wants. He's going to have to work to keep a guy in a position he wants. And he's going to have the guy who's got the skills and experience to make him pay for every mistake he makes. So while it's a meaningless fight and I don't really like the fight, based on paper and based on the actual skill and IQ of the fighters involved, I don't see how Aldo doesn't make this a very tough fight for him. Aldo didn't look bad against Marais. He really didn't. 
His last two fights against Holloway, he didn't look bad. He got beat decisively, but he did not look bad. He hasn't looked bad in a fight in years. So he's always been a step and a half, two steps, three steps ahead of the guys as far as IQ, skill, and ability to adjust. I, I don't know that that's changed because I haven't seen Jan face anybody who's really made him have to work and really made him have to go to a plan B. I don't know that he has a plan B. I just think he sticks to his plan A long enough to wear you out. If Jose Aldo was three or four years younger at the same weight class, I'd say Aldo wins for sure. But this faded version of Aldo who can't really be explosive for more, more than spots in a fight, that guy, I don't know if he has enough. But he has enough to make it a tough fight. He has enough to make Jan have to work for that. All right. If Jan comes out the champion on Saturday or on when this fight occurs in July, who is the last person he should he should want to face? The last person as far as most dangerous? Yeah. Uh, I'd probably say Sterling would probably be the most dangerous. I'd like to say if, if, if Cody had a chin, if Cody's chin was a little better, I'd say Cody was the most dangerous fight for him. Just because Cody's going to land seven or eight shots every round, and any one of those shots he lands is going to land clean, it's going to land hard, and I, I personally think he's perfectly capable of knocking Jan out. I think he's a really bad matchup athletically. I think he's a really match- bad matchup is regards to power. Maybe not skill, but if you look at just athleticism, level of competition, and power, um, I think I think Garbrandt would give would give Peter Jan a lot of problems, and he's capable of ending the fight with any strike. And Jan has not faced a guy who's really able to hurt him with strikes, and that that's a big adjustment. When you never face a guy who could really put an end to you at any moment. It's it's different, and uh, I think that'd be the biggest threat. Sterling, just because the the, le- the level of guy he's beaten, says that he should be a tougher matchup for him. But I really think Garbrandt, based on his athleticism, his power, and his speed, I, I think I think he's a really tough matchup for Jan. Not that Jan could beat him, but that first round or two, that's a tight row back. That's a tight row back that could end very badly for Peter Jan. Very good. Let's talk about the last fight that was announced today. We have a trilogy bout between Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic. They are one and one against each other, and they are fighting on August 15th for that heavyweight title that is around Stipe's waist. I am probably most interested in this fight, and I am not a fan of heavyweight MMA 97.7% of the time. But I'm interested in seeing which fight is the truth. The first one where Daniel was able to knock him out after a clinch engagement, or the second one where Stipe got the finish after basically, a lot of people are saying it was because of Cormier's decision to no longer wrestle. Uh, but I think it's more to it than that. I am very interested in seeing how this fight plays out. Sean, what are your thoughts about how this third fight will go around? Um, I think both of those fights are true representations of each fighter. Um, the fact of the matter is Daniel Cormier is a very hard hitter at heavyweight, even at light heavyweight, he was one of the better athletes. It wasn't as big a gap, but at heavyweight, even at this, even a faded Daniel Cormier is still more explosive, still physically stronger, and still more agile and faster than 98% of the heavyweights out there. You know, Ngannou maybe is better than him. Uh, Stipe is around there. But most guys, he just outclasses them off the athleticism, physical strength, and power alone. So the fight he won, people talk about the eye pokes, all this stuff. The fact is he hit him on the chin, the guy went out. 
I can't change that. And he put himself in position, and, and Stipe engaged him in the in the spots where Daniel was going to have success with them. So I can't, I can't dis, I can't, I can't downplay the result. The result is the result. I have to go by the result. In the second fight, um, it's that that was a good win for Stipe too. But the fact of the matter is, going toe to toe with with Daniel, Daniel was able to essentially hang with the better striker, the bigger, more experienced, longer striker. Daniel was able to go toe-to-toe with them and at least be even money to three rounds. The really thing that turned the fight wasn't so much Daniel not wrestling. It's when Stipe started going to the body shots. And it's weird that Stipe didn't figure this out in the first fight or figure this out early on in the second fight because Daniel Cormier has had a history of having problems getting touched to the body. The John Jones fights alone show what happens when you get to his body. He gets tired. He's not as aggressive. He's not as physical. He's not as explosive. And then you get him in spots where you can finish him. For some reason, Steve A never touched on that until like what the third round, third or fourth round, I can't remember which one. But he touched on it, and as soon as he did it, the whole fight changed. But once again, Daniel was fighting a fairly stupid one-dimensional fight in his weakest dimension, which is the striking. He's an effective striker, but technically he is just terrible. Footwork, setups, everything is just terrible. It's just not very good. He's just so tough, so committed, and such a grinding force, he's able to be successful with it. Just because you're successful doesn't mean you're good. So in this last matchup, who else were they going to fight? Uh, Stipe doesn't have anybody else to fight. Stipe's, there's no big name out there. Um, what's, what's his name? Uh, Derek Lewis. He's not available. He's in the hospital or whatever. Andre Vosky, you can't fight him. Francis Ngannou, he's already beaten him. The biggest fight for him. And it's a fight that gives him the most credit and the most bang for his buck. Highest risk, highest reward is fighting Daniel Cormier. It's not that they had anybody else to fight. This is the biggest money fight for them and the biggest legacy fight for them. Whoever wins this fight is the best heavyweight of all time. Dan Cormier will be the best heavyweight just by the fact that he beat Stipe twice. If Stipe beats him, he, beats, he, be, he essentially beats the only guy who's beaten him since he turned the corner as a heavyweight. So this fight is for the best heavyweight in the UFC's history of all time. So it's an important fight. It has an angle to sell. Both guys don't really like each other. Both guys have dominant wins over each other. It's just a matter now of who has more left. Stipe, obviously the younger fighter, he has more upside. He has more youth. He has more time on the side. Cormier, this is probably the last go-around for Cormier. So the question is, does Cormier decide that he's going to use all the skills in his last fight? Is he going to make it an MMA fight, or is he going to make it a tough man fight? He makes it a tough man fight, it's 50-50. If he really makes it an MMA fight, and he's in top physical condition, and he fights as disciplined and as smart as he knows how to, he should be able to pull this out. But it requires him to be flawless in conditioning and flawless in execution. He can't go in these back-and-forth exchanges at this point. And I really, and I really think he's going to retire after this fight. So he's, he, there is no tomorrow for him. He's got to leave it all in the tank, leave it all out there, because there's no other option for him except to move on past this point. So I think, he's, I think at this point, he, he might be the favorite. He's got nothing to lose. He's got no tomorrow. And we still haven't seen Daniel Cormier influence his full-on wrestling game against Stipe yet. We've seen the best of Stipe. Body shots, kicks, footwork, jabs, counters. We haven't seen the best of we haven't seen the best of Daniel Cormier. The full range, every skill I have, everything I have to offer Daniel Cormier at heavyweight yet. And I think that might be enough to get him this win. Interesting, you actually answered something I was going to ask, if whether or not you think that Cormier will walk away from the sport at this time. To be honest, I won't be surprised if either one of them did. Uh, I feel like Stipe is a little fed up with MMA, with the way uh, things have been going these last few days, or not these few days, but the last few months. 
Um, and how about years? Him. They never liked him. They don't like him. They, yeah, they really don't treat him very well. He's always been treated as an afterthought. And I, I'm not saying he's, he's not the kind of guy who sells pay-per-views. He's not very interesting. He doesn't know how to be charismatic. But the UFC, I mean, for a guy who's been as dominant as he has at the weight class, you'd think he'd get a little bit more of a push and a little bit more respect. You know, I mean, he's, it's, it's not quite as bad as Demetrius Johnson, but it's pretty close. Yeah, I could definitely agree with you on that there. Um, I wanted to turn over to some questions now that we have. I want to talk about two. The first one is a reference to fighter pay because we have this situation that's developing where John Jones has basically said, release me, uh, that he's not going to sit around waiting on the UFC anymore. Jorge Masvidal has said the same thing. Henry Cejudo uh, is claiming that, well, he basically retired and released, uh, uh, released both titles. And then you also have uh, Conor McGregor claiming he's retiring as well, too. Not saying that his is a money re- reason, but, you know, there's still questions around that. Looking at this breakdown here, are we in a situation where we're looking at more fighters saying we're done, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're done, but we're going to have those tough conversations now about fighter pay. Are we, are we closer to that conversation yet? Well, I mean, it's never a conversation that goes away. The fighters always have it one way or another. Some fighters make demands. Some fighters complain and whine. Some fighters beg for money after they get a win. We've seen all three of them, and we've seen them pretty much for the last, what, seven to ten years. So the conversation is constantly being had. The only thing is now is these conversations are starting to be had to the point where potential matchups, stars, and guys who would who could make the UFC a lot of money, who, who bring a lot of fans with them, are starting to have the conversation. And that's not necessarily new, but usually they don't do it in such a high-profile manner. That, that's the biggest separation. People are retiring. People are saying, I'm not going to fight. People are saying, actively calling out the UFC and not doing it in a roundabout. I'm looking out for all MMA fighters, like all these guys always pretend to do. They're saying, I'm getting screwed. This is getting, this is messed up. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm getting played on this. But these conversations are always had. They've been had for years. We talk about this every couple months. Well, Colby Covington was mad about the money he got. Who else was mad? Nate Diaz was mad about the money he got. Who else was it? Uh, Carlos Farza can't afford to feed herself. You know, it's, it's a constant thing. The pay in MMA is not very good. It's never been very good. It's not a 50-50 split. It's not a 40-30 split. It's not a 40-20. It's not an 80-20 split. It's, it's very unfair in the favor of the UFC. Everybody knows it. Everybody's been knowing it. It's just now because they're on a bigger platform, they're starting to get more pushback because they're, they're on a platform that is giving them a wider range of reach, which means there's going to be a wider array of people asking questions and a wider array of journalists and people who are going to be bringing up articles and having conversations about the pay in the sport. You, you can't get around that. You want major sport attention. You want major sport backing. You get major sport problems in every sport, bo- boxing, wrestling, excuse me, not wrestling, football, soccer, basketball, baseball. What do they talk about a lot on every first take and whatever, whatever money, how much they're getting paid, how much they deserve to get paid, who needs to get paid. Now the UFC after aligning themselves with ESPN, it's starting to feel some of that heat on a broad basis. It's not just the MMA sites now. It's real sporting sites. It's real business sites, citing things, looking at numbers, and asking questions. Do we think anyone will ever sit out and take the whole loss and just say, you know what, I'm okay with my career being over because I, I want to draw, put the stake in the ground and push forward for, for fighter pay? I haven't seen it yet. 
I mean, even uh, who was it? Who was the guy who went into real estate? Uh, God, I can't remember his name. The lightweight guy. He's a wrestler. Yeah, he disappeared for a while, but even he came back. Maybe he got a raise, but he came back. If they offer them the money they want or they're willing to have the talk, all these guys will come back. It's just going to take a certain number. That's all it's going to take. It's going to take a certain number. Dana White knows this is going to take a certain number. The question is, does he feel he can get with that fight, whatever number they want? Can he make the fight necessary to get back the money they're asking for? What kind of fight does it take to get John Jones paid the way he wants to? What kind of fight does it take to get Henry Cejudo paid the way he wants to? What kind of fight does it take for Jorge Masvidal to make money the way he wants to? Jorge's got the toughest bout out of all of it because he doesn't have anybody in the division who's a huge draw outside maybe Colby Covington. If he fought Colby Covington, we'd have something there. But the thing about it is he fought the biggest star in the division who does, who only, who, who's only a part-time fighter, Nate Diaz. And because of that, he was on a – he got pay-per-view points. He got all this sponsorship money. He got all these opportunities opening up because he fought, he fought Nate Diaz. There's no other Nate Diaz in the division. Conor McGregor is the only other guy. Everybody else isn't going to get him a big payday. I guess Nick Diaz is like, what, the orange panty night and Conor McGregor's the red panty night? There's no other panty color there because there's no other fighter who generates interest. So from this point on, Jorge Masvidal is only going to get money based off of who he fights. He doesn't make millions fighting anybody. He makes millions fighting specific people. There's nobody for him to fight to make that kind of money. At least Jones and maybe Cejudo have fights that might, might draw interest to get them paydays. Who does Masvidal have to fight to get him a payday? So your, your, your microphone is rubbing up against something, so there's a lot of static. So just kind of let's calm that down with, with this last question here. Um, the last question I wanted to ask is, have you been following the story around um, CrossFit and the situation that they're going through? Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I caught the tail end of it. That was just, that was bad, man. That, so the question was... we got is, how long until MMA has a situation like this as well? Um, or is MMA so niche and so few people care about it that we'll never have that problem, even though we know that there's a lot of similar sentiment and comments and you know commentary with, within MMA? The thing with CrossFit wasn't that it was just CrossFit. It was who who said it and they're ranking CrossFit. So if it's some random MMA place, we know that lots of MMA is funded by white supremacists and racists. That's, that's, it's an ugly secret, but it's kind of known. It would take somebody like a Scott Coker or a Dana White getting caught in an interview or kind of getting out of character, maybe some higher up in the UFC, somebody who really matters and has a faith. That's the only reason it hit with CrossFit. If it would have been an affiliate, they could have blown it off. And then cut them off and said, we're done with them, made a stand, made themselves look better. Because of who said it, that's what caused the problem. So we need someone like a Dana White, Scott Coker, uh, Ray, uh, Ray, Ray Secco uh, at PFL. We need somebody like that to make a statement. That's the only way it would have nearly the repercussions or the impact is you have somebody with that kind of influence, that kind of power, who's that kind of face of the sport saying it. Not just an athlete, like an actual owner who was – multi-millionaire, multi-billionaire making those kind of comments. That's the only way it would have a similar similar impact, I think. Well, okay. I can definitely uh, 
agree with that. Yeah, I I think it's just that it would have to be huge. It had to be someone huge to make a to make a comment such as that, and then the blowback would have to be well covered, and it had to be pretty much widespread from from that point. Well, if Dana ever said something like that, even if it was just in passing, it would it would blow up instantaneously. If it's a tweet, if it was on a hot yeah. mic, if you made the wrong comment, it would be huge. Kobe Covington, I guess maybe could say something like that. I think there's a reason why they keep microphones away from him because now's not the time for his gimmick. But I would think it'd have to be somebody who's who's really got a say in it. I mean, if some fighter says that, that's a big thing. But Dana White, the same Dana White who didn't pay T- Tyrone Woodley, the same Dana White who made a joke at Demetrius Johnson, if he makes some kind of racial comment, all those female and minority fighters who did not get paid, it looks a hell of a lot different now. It looks a hell of a lot different now. You know, I love a lot different. Now, now all those comments you make, it's hard for them to dance. You know, it's like at least when I when I talk, I'm aware of the racial aspect, but I could I could make some excuses. I can lie to myself. I can pull the wool over my eyes. I have some logical explanations. But if Dana White ever comes out of his mouth and says something like that, the benefit of the doubt is gone is lost. He screwed Tyrone Woodley because he's racist. He screwed Rashad Evans because he's racist. He screwed Cyborg Cyborg because he's racist. Amanda Nunes didn't get her push because he's racist. He can't afford to make that kind of statement. He can't afford to make anywhere near it. All he deals with is a multitude of different races and different nationalities. He can't afford to get caught in any sort of comment, justifying, backing up, or supporting anything that says anything negative. Not, not in his line of business. He'd have to go ASAP. I agree with that. Uh, so to close on out today, why don't you let everybody know what you're working on and what you have coming to our site soon. Uh, I keep on doing these articles on camps, and these MMA camps just keep being so bad in their preparation and their, their in-game adjustment. It just keeps giving me, I just keep on branching off into other cycles. So I've got a couple things written, and I just—I guess I'm just going to kind of release them as the weeks go on for things for people to look at when they see a fight and be like, okay, clearly, Shawan said if you do this, they should be working on this. It's clear this guy didn't work on this. Shawan said you should watch film. It's clear they didn't watch film because this guy's fighting this this guy who there's a lot of film on, like the Hooper versus Caceres fight. When you saw Hooper fight Caceres, he fought him like he'd never seen him fight before. It's like he, he had no idea what to look for. He had no idea what Caceres brought to the table. He had no idea what kind of athlete or what kind of style he was. He was just caught off guard at every single front and every single angle and every single dimension of mixed martial arts. How do you have professional coaches when you're fighting a guy who's a 10-year veteran in the UFC and you don't have any idea what he's going to do to you? All you have is tape on him. How do you not know that? That's a coaching mistake. So it's kind of just following along the lines of what camps should be doing and what coaches should be doing to give their fighters the best chance of winning and the mistakes they make that not just ruin fights, but ruin careers for fighters. Awesome, sir. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, I am working on regular content that I have uh, from MMA and professional wrestling. So that'll be the main point uh, for the next week or so. And I also have another interview scheduled with a combat sports photographer, which I think will be a good conversation as well. But with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and close out. So I thank you once again for everyone who's taken the time to listen to MMA Ratings Podcast, episode 166. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and share our content and keep up with all the work that we're doing across MMA Ratings. You can find this podcast over at Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud, not not SoundCloud any longer, excuse me, Anchor. 
as well, you can go over to U- MMA Ratings on YouTube for this podcast and our t- uh, professional wrestling show. And as always, you can go over to MMARatings.net to catch all of our content there. Um, Adam Martin is doing all the writing now, and all of our main flagship content is on that site. But again, my name is Rafael Garcia. I'm at rgarcia underscore sports. Schwan Humes, you can find him at Black Jordan Green. And thank you once again, and we will catch you guys next week. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you. Yeah.